I've been teaching on the function and the power of spiritual coverings. And today I want to talk about love coverings. I'm going to teach some things today that are going to be penetrating and provocative. I'm going to really preach straight today. I want to know if you're going to help me. See, some of you will. If the rest of you aren't, don't actively work against me then. (laughs) No, in all seriousness. I want to talk about some things that are so fundamental and elemental to the existence of the church, but things that seem to be more and more overlooked in these tumultuous times in which we live. More than ever before, we need spiritual discernment that we might know how to successfully live in these conflicted hours of man's existence. And it trust me when I tell you these are conflicted times. Amen. We need God's wisdom to know how to navigate through all of this that's going on in our world right now. All the uproar and upheaval and politics and the media and, and everything that's happening. I've never seen our nation more divided or fractured. And that's not representative of the identity of Christ because Christ is the uniting factor. He draws people together, not drives them apart. And we need his wisdom now. There were four people I heard about traveling on a small airplane when the engine went out. And there were only three parachutes. And one man jumped up and said, I'm a world-renowned heart surgeon and, and humanity really needs me. I've saved so many lives. I operate on, on hundreds and hundreds of people. So he grabbed one of the parachutes and jumped out of the airplane. And a second man jumped up and grabbed one of the parachutes and said, I'm one of the very smartest men in the world. I have one of the highest IQs of anyone on the planet. I'm a leading rocket scientist, and the world needs me also. So he jumped. And the third man looked at the fourth passenger. The fourth passenger was a little boy. He was a, a Boy Scout dressed in his little uniform. And the third guy looked at this Boy Scout and said, Son, I'm a pastor. I'm old and I'm tired and I've been serving God for all my life. I'm not afraid to meet him. You take the last parachute and jump. And the little Boy Scout said, There's no need for you to stay on the plane, sir. There are actually two parachutes left. You take one and I'll take the other and we can both jump. And the pastor said, I thought there were only three parachutes to start with. And the Boy Scout said, Yes, there were. The world's leading rocket scientist, who is one of the smartest men in the world, just grabbed my backpack and jumped with it. (laughs) We need a little bit more insight before we leave the plane and make our big jump, don't we? I want to talk about love coverings. There are eight different kinds of spiritual coverings. Israel in the wilderness is covered by this cloud that, as I said, we always think of as being vertical. It wasn't. I read you the text in Psalms the last couple of weeks where God said he spread the cloud over Israel, air-conditioned them by day, gave them warmth by night. Not only that, everything under that cloud was supernaturally provided for. Their shoes didn't wear out. They were divinely protected. They had men on the ground, a rock followed them in the wilderness and gushed water and turned 
one of the most inhospitable and harshest of all environments on the planet into a, a vertible oasis in paradise. Isaiah said the desert blossomed like a rose. As long as they were under that cloud, they were covered by the grace of God. There are eight different kinds of coverings, and I've spoken about prayer coverings and blood coverings, and I've spoken about worship coverings and grace coverings, and today I want to talk about love coverings. Before we can even begin to talk about that, we must first identify what love is. Because in this world that we live in right now, that really is an important need that exists. We have to know what love is. Foreigner used to sing the song, I want to know where, what love is or where love is. I can't remember how it goes, the old song. What love is. Yeah, there you go. Amen. Thank you. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> you walked into that, Sister Belinda. I'm sorry. Amen. The simple truth of the matter is most people don't know what love is. Love is not what the world defines it as being, which is, I love you. Well, why? Because when I'm around you, you make me feel so good and fulfilled. And what they're really saying is, I love you because of what I get out of this relationship. The love of God is not based upon what he gets out of the relationship with us. John 3.16 defines the love of God this way, for God so loved the world that he gave. Whereas most people feel like love is something you get, the love of God is defined as something that you give. He gave his only begotten son. And it is this fundamental clash of ideas and understandings that is underneath everything that I want to talk about today. To even begin to understand love coverings, we must first know how God feels about sin. There, I've said it. I've said it. Because in this modern world in which we live, that's a subject that some churches will not even allow to be discussed on the platform. I know churches that have issued memos. Churches in this city never use that three-letter word. I always thought it was the four-letter words that were so bad. It's not. It's the three-letter word. Sin. Never use that word here. Makes people feel condemned. And yet, to understand love coverings, you're going to have to explain how God feels about sin. But not only that, now watch this, you must also know how he feels about the sinner. It may seem like I'm preaching to the choir to even bring this up, but God fervently hates sin. And yet, passionately and ardently loves the sinner. He loves the sinner as much as he hates sin. And I find that fewer and fewer people in the church today truly understand this fact. And you can go to any number of churches around our nation and even the world, certainly even in our own city without speaking disrespectfully to any church or pulpit this morning, and you will find that churches have done one of two things with this subject of sin. They either refuse to declare the biblical teachings against the works of the flesh any longer, saying they are rather called to love people, or they rail 
against the sinner. And implicit in the first position is that if you refuse to declare biblical teachings against the works of the flesh because you love people, then you're suggesting that if you do speak about works of the flesh, that means you don't love people. And that is exactly where we are at in the culture that exists in this nation right now. Because if you dare mention anything that the Bible defines as being destructive or harmful, there's somebody that's going to stand up and call you a bigot, a hater, say you're prejudiced, and boy, we hear it every single day. So often, in fact, that many churches have actually been intimidated into silence. Somebody's going to call you narrow-minded. And as I said, other ministries assume the exact opposite and polar position, and that is their messages are filled with hate. This Westboro Baptist Church, forgive me for even calling a name, but they're out there in the news fairly regularly. That's that church in Kansas that sends its people all over the United States of America. Small church in Kansas, very fundamental Baptist church. And they send primarily members of one family. And they send their people all over the U.S. And like when a U.S. serviceman has been killed in, in defense of his nation or in combat in Iraq or Afghanistan, they have been known to send their people to picket his funeral and hold up placards. And call this man by name who gave his life in defense of, the, of, of what we believe, our ideals. And say he went to hell. And stand out there chanting he went to hell. Because they take a position that all war is wrong. And I do believe there are a lot of wars that have been fought that never should have been fought. So don't think I'm trying to justify anybody's wars. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill. But the original Hebrew word is commit murder. It doesn't mean that if somebody's breaking into your house and about to take your children's life or that of your wife, that you don't have a right to protect yourself. I mean, just, it's amazing. We listen to armchair theologians that don't know beans about the Bible. You ask them who Moses is, and they think he built an ark. And no disrespect, but we get intimidated into silence on important matters. And on the other hand, these people like I'm talking about right now, they were prominently seen at this horrific Orlando massacre where this, this guy went in and killed all these people in that nightclub, a gay nightclub. And they showed up at funerals of these people holding placards, calling them by the worst names and saying they all deserve to die. And that is not the spirit of Christ. It's not. It's not the spirit of Christ to rail against humanity that's broken, no matter how imperfect he is, because I remember as a kid, I used to hear my old pastor, he'd say, when you point your finger like this, Remember, you got four more pointing back at you. So you have imperfect people railing against other imperfect people, and that's not the Spirit of God, but neither is it the Spirit of Christ to tell people that anything is okay 
because God does fervently hate sin because it is so destructive to his highest creation, the one he loves the most, and that's mankind. Contrary to what they tell us today, you can love the sinner and still hate wrong. Matthew 1, 19 through 21, and I'm going to turn there, and I want to just pray. I've waited till now to pray because I want to throw out my foundational premise before I get into this. Next week, I'll talk about love coverings and what this church needs to be in this community, a hospital to the sick and to the broken. But I want us to pray. Father, because of the confusion and misunderstanding that exists in this day and age in which we live, do speak to us from your word. Because we understand that any preacher is just limited. Any speaker can only get up here and just speak from the notes that he's prepared as he has been in prayer and hopefully you've been speaking to him. But even that's inadequate, Lord. We need you to talk directly to our hearts. That is our consciences, our spirits move with inside of us. Open your word to our understanding and I ask you to do it because this is so critical and important. I ask in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. amen. Matthew 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Right away, you notice this, this is that passage of Scripture we always read around Christmas time. But it says, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Notice this, for he shall, or he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. The Greek word that is used here for save means to deliver, to protect, to heal, to make whole. Our word save in the English actually comes from a French word who has, that has its origin in the 12th century. And it literally means to make secure or safe. That in turn was borrowed from the Latin word because the Romance languages are founded upon the Latin language, right? And what the Latin word literally means is to make safe. It means to save from ruin, destruction, or harm. It also means to keep up and reserve for personal or special use to bring into safety. So when Jesus came, he came to deliver, to protect, to heal, to make whole. To make whole implies there's something missing. To heal means there's a sickness. To protect means there's a danger. To deliver means there's bondage. To save from ruin, from destruction or harm suggests just how bad and detrimental sin is to one's life. And to keep and reserve for personal or special use implies that he has a purpose for every person here, but sin can destroy that. You see, mankind was created both to give and to cause others to give God Glory. When humanity lives as God intended for us to live and our lives are guided by the principles of the kingdom of God, 
it causes us to enjoy and experience a degree of favor and blessing that other people do not find. They may have more money, a better job, but they don't have inside what we have. My contention is there is no better advertisement for God than a child of God who's walking faithfully in the plans of God for his life. Because he is blessed and fulfilled at a degree and to a degree that no one around him is experiencing. And so they look at you and see this amazing sense of fulfillment and happiness and in your life, and maybe you don't have as much stuff as they have because they bought into this whole thing that things equal joy. They don't. I want to tell you, the more you own, the more that owns you is the truth of the matter. Now, I'm not against things, and neither is God. I pray that God blesses you a million times above where you're blessed right now as long as you own it and it doesn't own you is the point. But When an unsaved person looks at a child of God who's walking in divine favor, that speaks so forcefully to them because you represent everything that is missing from their own life. And when you live in a state of blessedness, that reveals to people who are watching you the heart of the God you serve. It's very important that we understand this because from the very beginning, Satan has tried to cause this one fact about God to become obscure and forgotten. He attacked this fundamental principle and questioned the very character of God by saying, has God said you shall not eat of the fruit of this tree? You shall not surely die. He's casting doubt upon everything that God has said. Now he's openly calling God a liar. You won't die for God knows the day you eat of it, you will be like God even worse He causes us to question the heart of God now by telling us that the day you eat of this tree, you're going to, man, it's going to add something to you and you will experience joy that you haven't yet experienced. This is another dimension of, of fulfillment or happiness. And I just don't understand this God that you're worshiping here. He's trying to keep you back from something that really is fulfilling. You'll enjoy this. It's not going to hurt you. He's lied to you. And that is the ultimate reality of life and the message behind even the book of Job. The ultimate reality of life is there is an enemy that wants to posture and position God the wrong way in your mind. He wants to make you question who God is and what his purposes are. He wants somehow to redefine God in your mind as not being loving and kind and on your side, but rather position God in your mind as being the motorcycle cop that hides behind, like I've said before, the billboards on the highway of life, ready to pull you over. Aha! Get off his motorcycle walk over with his jack boots on and pull out his ticket book and snap it open and write you a ticket to appear at the great throne of judgment. That's what Satan wants you to think. That was the whole purpose of the attack against Job. He was constantly trying to get Job to question who God was, make him doubt the heart of God. The great struggle in the book of Job is that Job is struggling to hold on to the idea that God is good. 
And if he can hold on to that idea, every bad thing the enemy has thrown against him is going to work out for his good. Amen. You see, that's what the devil does. He likes to shoot people down and then say it was God that did it, not me. Amen. He attacks us. And yes, we do get attacked. And he always turns around and says, God did it. Amen. He wants to change the way we think toward God. Look at the story in Genesis chapter 2. And they were both naked, verse 25. And the man and his wife were not ashamed. And then you turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more cunning. Remember this. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. People say, is that a real serpent? I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe speaking metaphorically. But I do know this. There is a deceiver present. And has God indeed said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it. Uh, uh, rather, the woman said, to, uh, I skipped ahead, we shall not eat of the fruit of, uh, of the tree of the garden. And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the tree. It's just the one in the middle we can't eat of. God said, you shall not eat it nor touch it lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not Surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And now what he has done is said, if you do this, you can become like God. Wait a minute. I thought they were made in God's image and likeness and were already like God. And right there in the very beginning, he puts man on this treadmill that if you chase yourself long enough, and work hard enough, you can become what you already are. Amen. So when the woman saw the tree and so forth, she ate the fruit. And bottom line is, they were both naked. And in verse number eight, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? When asking Adam where he was, don't think that what God was suggesting is, Adam, you've done such a great job hiding, I can't even find you. Like kids playing hide and seek. Adam, man, you got me stumped here. Where'd you hide? That wasn't what God was doing here. One of the most important of all strategies to learn in dealing with people where you have to help them understand a position that they need to take that's important to you and your values. Like, for example, in a family, you're trying to raise your kids to understand your values, right? Or maybe your own spouse and you're having a little conflict over a decision that needs to be made, one of the worst things you can do is go and try to tell them why it's that way. Because that's like beating your head against this brick wall right there. You're not going to get anywhere. Strategic questions. Instead of telling them, ask questions that will guide them to the right answer. No one wants you to force your opinion on him. Man convinced uh, against his will is a man of the same opinion still, we've always heard. And what God was doing in the garden 
is asking Adam a strategic question. Where are you, Adam? Not you've hidden so well that I can't find you, but Adam, where is the image of glory that I created you to reflect? I made you in my image and in my likeness. That's gone now. I'm looking for you, Adam. Where's that man with destiny and purpose and authority? You walked into dominion here. Everything was submitted to you. You had unlimited resources. You, you, this world was a perfect place. You had it all, Adam. Where's that at now? Where are you, Adam? Where are you? And man is still struggling to find out where he's at all of these years later. As I've said, we live in a divided age. Where's man? Struggling and broken, afraid of his own shadow, terrified of where we're headed. Christians are afraid to stand for what they believe in churches. It becomes social gatherings where people go to have their consciences soothed. But is there a voice from heaven to direct our nation with love and concern? More and more, the answer is less and less. Sin is not even mentioned anymore. And if it is, everyone is quick to label you as a narrow-minded bigot, a hater. When in reality... If what God says about sin in eternity is true, it is absolutely the most cruel form of abuse and neglect to not tell the truth about sin. That if what God said is the truth and you don't share it with somebody, it is worse than if you knew a building was going to burn down in 15 minutes and there are people in the building, but you will not tell them and they lose their lives. Amen. You have to tell them. But man is so confused at this point that he views God as his enemy. The world's attitude towards sin is much different than that of God's. And it all started back there with the enemy. God knows you'll really become like him. <laughs> News for you, devil. I already am. That would have been a better answer. But you see, Satan employed the same strategy by asking strategic questions. Has God said? And he made Adam and Eve doubt the very heart of God. And the world has been doubting, humanity has been doubting God ever since then. Did you know, for example, referring back to this serpent, Robert B. Johnson, theologian, writes, ancient Greek religion, what we call mythology, tells the very same story as the book of Genesis. It does. If you've ever studied Greek mythology, it's there. With this notable exception that the serpent is the enlightener of mankind. Ever since that lie of the enemy in the garden, the serpent has been portrayed as your friend. The one that's going to introduce you to the party that he calls life. The good times you've been missing out on. And those Christians over there, those sticks in the mud, can't have any fun. Walking around look like they fell in a mud puddle and they're so dry they drew it up, dried it up. I mean, just, just miserable people. I know Christians that look that way. I, I think they stand in front of a mirror practicing how miserable they can look. That's not what fullness of life is all about. Jesus came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And the enemy looks at that and says, see, 
Or he looks at those that are haters and says, see all that judgmentalism? See that church up there in Kansas? Or, and again, forgive me for even making reference to them, but they're actually quite proud of what they do. So I, I think I can mention them since they're in the news pretty often. I don't mean any church any disrespect. And the enemy says, what the church really does is stand between you and your fun, your enjoyment, your pleasure in life. But this is what the Bible really says. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The message says that there's a way of life that looks harmless enough. Look again, it leads straight to hell. Sure, those people appear to be having a good time, but all that laughter will end in heartbreak. And this is what you need to know, like the old radio commentator years ago, Paul Harvey would say, there's the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is this, that sin is extremely destructive, so much so that God absolutely hates it with a virulent passion But unlike those people that rail against humanity, he loves people with the same degree of passion. In the grand drama and romance of the ages, God searches for ways to reveal to mankind the truths of his kingdom that are often, quite frankly, just so far above our ability to perceive them that if left to our own devices, we would never be able to know the heart of God. And so what God does is he uses Different literary devices. You know what a literary device is? Like a a metaphor, a simile, a type, a shadow, a totem, an emblem, a sign. All of these things he uses in the Bible. Some people say the, ah, the Old Testament. Not necessary. Focus on the New Testament. You can't understand the New Testament unless you have read the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament And what we see in the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed, but revealed in the New. Watch it now because I really want you to see this. And in the Old Testament, God uses all of these metaphors to describe important principles and themes that have to do with salvation and and other things that are vital to our understanding that will come later in the New Testament era. For example, in the Old Testament is a sacrifice for sin that would take a lamb and the family, the man priest of the family put his hand on the head of the lamb and and pray and the priest would pray and, and by that he would impart his sins into the animal and they would take it and they would sacrifice it. Of course, they don't do that anymore. But you can't understand what John was doing when he looked up from the water where he was baptizing people and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You can't understand that statement unless you first look at the Old Testament and see the Lamb that is represented. And then all of a sudden it clicks. Yeah, hey, sacrifice for my sins. Lamb of God. Yeah, it makes sense now. The Old Testament there were other types and shadows used. For example, there were insights into the character and nature of sin and how destructive it was. The dreadful disease of leprosy that was existed at that time is, apparently was much more virulent than the type of leprosy that exists today. It was highly communicable. There were all kind of laws back then. You could not come within 12 feet of somebody that had leprosy. 
You had to wear a cloth over your mouth, and that was the forerunner, of course, to the modern surgical mask used by a physician or a nurse and, uh, and treating people that, that uh, were susceptible to the influence of disease or maybe that whose immune system were compromised or maybe they had a disease themselves and the physician didn't want to run the risk of catching it. So we see they would carry a, this the cloth over their face tied around their mouth because they, they, they couldn't go down to the medical supply store and buy these medical masks already made. And if you came closer than 12 feet, they had to cry, unclean, unclean. They were not permitted to live with their families any longer. If they had children, they had to leave them. They stayed in squalid camps outside cities. And nobody there lived there but lepers. And, and they, they commiserated in their misery with one another. And I'm telling you, it was bad. This, I, get ready. If you don't want to see this, close your eyes. Because I'm going to show you a modern day victim of leprosy. Put this up there. This is what leprosy looks like. I've been in many countries in the world and where leprosy is still a very real fact. And some people wait to be treated. There's this horrible disease that's afflicted this poor man. And look at this next one in a leper colony. This man's fingers have literally decayed and rotted off. And that's what happened happens in leprosy. The word leprosy literally comes from the word scales and it, it means or refers, rather, to how parts of the body would decay, scab over, and then just slew off. Fingers fall off, toes fall off, ears, nose, all kind of stuff. This horrible disease. And here's what's amazing. Leprosy is, generally speaking, a painless disease. Because before it reaches that stage right there that you just saw, it first attacks the nerves, and you don't feel pain. Hear what I'm talking about. This is one reason that God used leprosy in Scripture to describe the effects of sin. Sin works the same way. You not only don't feel pain, you don't feel pleasure. Hello? And isn't that what happens to a person that gets all wrapped up in sin? Talk about pornography for a moment. You get involved in pornography. After a while, you can't even have pleasure in an intimate relationship with your own God-given companion. Same thing is true with drugs. If you've ever come from that culture, and I did years ago, you're always searching for that original high. Because what happens is, once you start giving yourself into these things, something starts dying. And you don't feel pain. And somebody can be in affairs and say, well, I'm numb on the inside. Yeah, I, I know why. It's because this thing is killing you on the inside. You hear what I'm saying? And of course, these days, what's an affair? You know? I told you I'm going to hit really hard today, but I'm going to do it with love. Because I need you to help you understand. Sin works in this way. Sin in your life causes a desensitizing. It causes you to reach the point where, as Paul said, your conscience becomes seared with a hot iron, calloused and thick. You don't feel remorse first couple of times. Oh, God, what did I do? And then after a while, there's decreased sensitivity. And I realize that just me mentioning what I'm talking about right now probably is making people in this building feel really uncomfortable 
because you're immediately, some of us are identifying with what I'm saying and saying, oh, he's talking about me, no doubt about it. And that's not what I'm suggesting. This is why I'm here today to preach with love and say that while God hates sin, he loves with passion the sinner. He loves the person that's wrong. And there's not a one of us in this building today that are perfect. Do you hear what I'm saying? We all have this treasure in earthen vessels. Every one of us do. When asked how to pray, Jesus said, pray like this every day. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us for our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Every day of my life, I have to ask God, God, forgive me for where I failed you. Because I'm not perfect, but I'm working on stuff, you hear. And that's what Christians are, people who are not perfect but working on things. You say, well, pastor, if sin is described as being like leprosy, ha, wait, let's extrapolate to the next step. We don't blame people that are victims of a disease. Somebody has cancer, we don't get mad at that person and say, shame on you. We don't blame them for their sickness. We say they're a victim, right? Just again, I mentioned Pastor Irving Clark, who just a couple of weeks ago had surgery, and uh, Phyllis sent me an email just yesterday. And he went back for his post-operative checkup, and the doctor had told his wife Phyllis in the surgical um, the, the procedure after it was over following the surgery that he would have been dead because of that mass growing in his stomach. In two weeks, he would have died. And Irvin was out of it. But this time, he was alert and awake and there in the doctor's office. So Phyllis wants the doctor to say again and said, Doctor, did I hear you correctly that you said my husband was near to losing his life? And the doctor said, yes, he had about two weeks left to live. If he had not found this thing, and I told you the story of how it was found. He had a back problem, and they went in to do blood work for treatment, uh, a surgical procedure for his back, and he was so anemic, they couldn't do that, and did an upper and lower GI and found this mass the size of a tennis ball. Now, it would be the worst kind of wrong for somebody to walk up to him and say, shame on you. You have cancer. You had cancer. Thank God the lab reports came back. There's not a bit of it anywhere else in his body. Amen. They got it all. So I thank God for that. But here's the point I'm making. Generally speaking, people who are victims of a disease are not blamed for the disease. And so there are all those out there in today's world that take that step theologically as well. Well, if sin is a disease like leprosy, then God can't blame us. Ha, I'm free. (laughs) I can do what I want to do. God can't blame me. No, there's a big, big difference. He can't blame you for being born in sin. You had nothing to do with that. That's Adam and Eve. Amen. But if somebody comes and you have cancer and there's a 100% cure, available and they say here it is and you stubbornly willfully say no I like this thing in my body I want to have cancer then at that point you do assume responsibility for your condition and I want to tell you there is a 100% cure for sin and it's called the blood of Jesus Christ The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It works every single time. 
It's not like chemotherapy where it's a roll of the dice. It works every single time. If you're a sinner and you come to him and say, just as I am without one plea, I want you to know you're going to walk out of here forgiven today because that's the way the blood of Jesus works. He loves the sinner, but he hates sin. He loves us, but he hates the wrong in our lives because he sees how difficult it is, the damage it does to us. Everybody's talking about, man, you hear some folks say this. You hear unsaved people especially say it. They just don't know how good God is or they would never say this. Man, I don't know if I have what it takes to be a Christian. That's hard. You won't talk about being something being hard. That's to be a sinner. Proverbs 13, 15, good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. That's what's hard. Amen. Living this double life, all this stuff going on, making decisions that, that torpedo your own future, destroy your family, work against you, cause you to lose self-respect. That, that's what's hard. We rightly love someone who provides a cure for a disease. And you haven't seen the picture because it's been in my office now for years, but, but it used to be in the hall there. But we think of Mother Teresa. We love her. I met her in Calcutta, India, and that's the photo that I'm referring to on my first trip to Calcutta many years ago with my buddy Mike Massengill and Greg Barrios, two members of the church. Both of them going to be with the Lord now. And that little lady gave her life to minister to the broken. And when I stood there in her presence, I felt such humility. I was humbled. I couldn't help it. Tears started to run down my face because she represented everything sacrificially that we ought to be representing about the character of God. She served the the poorest of the poor. And these verses tell us that God in his infinite goodness has provided an antidote for sin. We love Mother Teresa because she ministered to the sick and the poor. But let me tell you about God. He provided his own son and said, call his name Jesus for he will save my people from their sins. He will save them, preserve them. He will heal them. He will set them aside for the purposes and preserve their lives for the reasons that I created them in the, in the first place. And notice, he still called them his people. He shall save his people from their sins. He didn't say he's going to save those dirty scallywags, those low-down bamboozling skunks. And that's not what he said. He said he's going to save his people from their sins. God still owns his relationship with you. That is, God has not walked away. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, I wish I could hear an amen right now. Amen. And Paul refers to the effects of this disease. And what happens when you got saved, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, and he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. You were dead, man. You had no future. Final stage. On your way out of here. He said, in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Do you see where the blame is laid? Right at the feet of the enemy, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And he continues in chapter 2, verse 4 through 7, but God. I need somebody to say, but God. But God. 
John Wesley one time saw a drunk lying in a gutter in London, England and said, there but for the grace of God go I. Amen. The only reason you're here this Sunday morning instead of a crack house somewhere or a penitentiary is because but God. Amen. God stepped into your life. Amen. Amen. God in his goodness preserved you. Some of us got caught. Others should have. <laughs> Come on now, don't act so self-righteous. You know I'm telling you the truth. You're all sitting there all full of yourself and proud. <laughs> I don't know who he's talking about. You, you, you know who he's talking about? Certainly not us on this pew. Not Never, never. Hey, I've been pretty good my whole life. Oh, yeah. Get the microscope out and you can dig through every one of our lives and find plenty of wrong. We were born in sin, shapen in iniquity. But God, who is rich in mercy. Did you hear that? He's rich in mercy. He's Bill Gates rich in mercy. He's Carlos Slim rich in mercy. God's got mercy oozing from every pore. God's got mercy falling out of every pocket. Amen. When God walks down the street, he leaves footprints of mercy behind. When God walked into your life, you had a head-on collision with mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? You didn't raise yourself. He lifted you up. The psalmist said he rolled up his shirt sleeves and dipped way down into the miry clay and found us. That's the grace of God at work. It's depicted in St. Luke 15 as the woman with a coin that fell to the floor. The three dimensions of lostness. The first was the lost sheep in mortal danger. Second was the woman with the lost coin. That's lost destiny because a coin is made to be spent. The third is the lost son. That's lost relationship. Three dimensions of lostness. And what does God picture this woman is doing? Getting on her hands and knees. Because in that day, the floors were covered with straw that was matted together and got dirty. And, and whenever it got trampled on and broken down, you know what they'd do? Take another batch of straw and put it on the floor. And so she gets her little candle out and she's on her knees digging through the matted straw and field looking for that coin. And that's what Jesus said is a picture of God doing when he came looking for you. He raised us up that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, somebody ought to just lift their hands and say thank you. Is there anybody here that can say thank you? I wonder, is there anybody here that can remember when he saved you? I need somebody to say thank you. Thank you. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you, Lord. And this is the glorious reason for which Christ came. The message announced by the angel Gabriel to Joseph was a message of hope and the long dark night of suffering that humanity had experienced all the way back to the fall. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And as we learned earlier, to save means to deliver, protect, heal. There's another 
type used in the Old Testament, and that is when Israel complained and murmured in that cloud, that covering withdrew. And Israel, who was divinely protected in the wilderness for 40 years, they've been surrounded by all of these adversities, and now without a spiritual covering, which is what happens if you don't have a spiritual covering, wham, bam, all of this stuff starts falling on them. They're bit by fiery serpents, and these fiery serpents were venomous snakes. And people literally died in agony. And the cure was, God said to Moses, cast one of these serpents in brass and put it on a pole and lift it up and whoever looks on it can live. And everybody that was bitten, that was crying in agony and dying, if they could just look at this serpent on the pole, the pain went away and they were healed. You see, it really does depend on what you're looking at. Oh, I need to talk to you right now. If you're looking the other direction, you're going to miss out on what could be happening in your life. But if you're looking to God for guidance and for leadership, hello, amen. Of course, this is a type of Christ, a representation of him on the cross, because he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we, Paul said, might be made the righteousness of God by him. He became the despised serpent on the pole that to this day is still the symbol of the Hippocratic Oath, the healing of, that, is, that is done by doctors and nurses, the oath that doctors take when they carry this little pin. You see it on, on a, a sign outside a doctor's office, the serpent on a pole. It's referring and hearkening back to the brazen serpent on the pole representing Christ, that if you look on him, turn your eyes full upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Sin, the original word, as I've shared before and I'm done, literally is an archer's term. It means that when you aim a bow at a target, an arrow, and when you release it, it veers off to the side and misses the target. It's an archer's term. Look it up. Strong's Concordance. The Bible says in Psalms that children are in heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Happy is he who has his quiver full of them. God gives you children and you as parents are supposed to put your hands over their little hands and help them point the bow of their life, the arrow of their life toward a specific destiny because every person is created with a destiny. You're not here by accident. You say, when did some of this stuff start happening that the church has been affected by, uh, we, that, that, that we've lost our ability to be able to stand in this broken hour when people need direction. I'll tell you where a lot of it came from. It came when the teaching of evolution began to be taught in our schools. Which, by the way, if you've ever studied uh, cellular microbiology, read the books by Michael Behe and others, for example. They used to think that cells were just little bitty sacks of protoplasm. They've since found out that's not true. That in every cell, there's a whole factory. It's got all these intricate organic machines. And they have now said that if you really want to say that, that we evolved, there's, the world isn't even, the universe hasn't been around long enough because of the complexity of life that's in these cells. It was easy to say that whenever you thought that, 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 that we evolved when you thought that the cell was just a little sacro micro, a, a, a little micro 
miniature sack of protoplasm, but now we found out how complex they are. And do you know that in spite of the evidence, they still hold on to that theory that of evolution that has long since by many credible scientists been disproven. But you know why they hold on to that? Simple. Because if all you are is an evolved state of being, then there's no such thing really as an absolute moral right or wrong. Am I right? Come on, help me out here. And if there's no such thing as right or wrong, you can do whatever you want to do. And of course, this set the stage for the whole abortion thing that's in the news now. And 60 million babies have been aborted. And again, you, this is the problem because you have folks standing on the street, I'm against abortion. And they, they rail at the persons that have had them. Look, I'm against abortion too. If 60 million of any population had been killed, the world would be screaming. But because it's babies and they're only so much fetal material, if they're not created by God, that is. But if they're created by God, that's a lot more than fetal material. Amen. And we're, we're, we're opposed to that, but here's the thing. You've got to love the sinner. You don't stand and rail at people that have had abortions. You, Jesus welcomed them with open arms that were in sin. He reached out and touched the leprosy. You saw what was on the screen a while ago. He reached out and touched them. We've got to minister to a broken society more now than ever before. The world needs the love of Jesus Christ. I need a better response because some of you, uh, you're saying no, 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 uh-uh. Uh-uh. And of course, if, if we all evolve, well, then who needs prayer in schools and who needs the Ten Commandments in public buildings? And all of it gets thrown out. And now, churches afraid to take a position on righteousness because somebody's going to say, I'm a bigot. I'm uneducated. I didn't go to school. I'm narrow-minded. I'm a hater. Prejudiced. Can't let anybody call me that. If we're going to please God in this hour, we have to have the heart of God. David was a man after God's own heart. It didn't mean he had it. He was after it. God, give me your heart. Give me your heart. Give me your heart. We've got to have the heart of God. What is the heart of God? To hate sin, but to love the sinner. Amen. And I'm closing. Psalms 119, 104 through 105. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate Every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I hate every false way. There are ways that are false. False means untrue. The root word in the Hebrew means to cheat. The question, of course, is when someone cheats, who's being cheated the most? The person doing the cheating or the one being cheated? Think about it. You hear what I'm saying? Who's really being cheated the most. I would submit to you that the one doing the cheating is in worse, in a worse place than the person he's cheating from. Oh, so you may get uh, some of your money stolen because somebody runs a, a game on you, a scam, but you know who's going to suffer at the end of the day? The guy that thinks there are shortcuts to the top when there are not. You will recover because God will bless you. Hello, somebody. Oh, hear me. I preached it last week. You can't curse what God has blessed. Balaam tried. 
and you may run game on me, and you might even scam me. And it's going to make everything you meant to do against me for harm become a blessing. That's what he did with Job. The reason God backed out of the way to let the enemy attack Job, he knew that if Job persevered, that in that attack was also the source of his next breakthrough. And where you're being attacked right now is where your next breakthrough is coming. I've got a word from God for somebody. Somebody in this building, I feel it right now, that's walking through the middle of something. God's getting ready to turn it around. I said, God's getting ready to turn it around. God's getting ready to turn it around. The enemy meant it for harm, but God means it for good. Stand with me. Stand with me. Every false way. And so if somebody is thinking that Man, I'll go outside my marriage vows and I'll have a little fun. That's a false way. Just wait till the whole thing comes crashing down on you. Wait until you look at your broken-hearted little children. Wait until you've lost your business, your self-respect. I'm urging you, people of God, I love you. But I'm urging you, look at sin the way it ought to be looked at. It's glorified. You can't turn on the television without some aspect of sin be glorified, being glorified. I'm going to sound like my grandmother. They used to call the TV. I was raised by an elderly woman, born not in the last century, but the century before. And I thought she was so old-fashioned, it wasn't even funny. And she would, they would call the television that one-eyed devil. And I laughed at her. And then I would sneak over to my auntie's and watch TV. (laughs) Even worse, my grandmother would go with me sometimes. (laughs) I was back when Grand Ole Opry was a big thing. She'd go watch Grand Ole Opry. You know, it took me a while to reach this point, but I've just about decided she knew what she was talking about. There's such filth pumped into our homes. Our children are being babysit by television programs that are indoctrinating them into a culture that does not love God. We've got to be like God. We need to hate sin, but love the sinner. So next week when I'm talking about when I talk about loving the sinner and you need a love covering, you'll know that what I'm talking about is not making everything permissible because that's not what it's about. Sin will destroy you. There is a way that seems right and demand, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It's a false way. But I do want to tell you that this is a hospital. And it's a place of healing. And if you come here, God forbid that any one of us should ever stand and look at somebody who's coming here regardless of their wrong and judge them. Don't you judge them. Because God did not judge you. 
come pray with me right now.